0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Howard Burton, host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to present the following Pandemic Perspectives podcast, one of a special series of 24 podcasts that, together with our Pandemic Perspectives documentary and my book, Pandemic Perspectives, A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, make up our comprehensive Pandemic Perspectives project, looking at the COVID-19 crisis from a spectrum of different angles. Today's Pandemic Perspectives podcast features Patricia Churchland, an internationally renowned neurophilosopher who's made a glittering career of concretely demonstrating both the philosophical importance of rigorous biological understanding and the biological importance of rigorous philosophical understanding. The perfect person, in other words, to provide some much-needed broad-based perspective on the COVID-19 pandemic and what we can all learn from it.
1: It's hard really to gauge the tone and the temper of the wider public right now with regard to science. And maybe that's always been the case, but the American government has been very, very generous in funding basic science, partly, of course, with a view to defense considerations, as well as with regard to long-term health considerations. And, you know, both of those things have a different kind of cast at the moment than they might have, say, 50 years ago, partly, of course, because Articles are now written about what the real wars will be, and the real wars will not be shooting wars and invasive wars. Mostly they'll be about the economy, about technology, and so on. Also, I think the Afghanistan war put many people in the mind that, look, you know, maybe our defense of liberty or democracy around the world is not the best way to go about things. There's a kind of isolationist. Framework, which I don't judge one way or the other because I don't really know enough, but I understand it. Let's put it that way. So that's one thing. And with regard to health, we talked earlier about the opioid disaster and right. the disaster that came about as a result of the selling of OxyContin as being non-addictive, which, of course, the Sacklers knew very well it was addictive. And the opioid crisis is still with us. And in some ways, owing to COVID and isolation and feelings of despair and being discouraged, people think, oh, Christ, why not just shoot up? And so that I think remains a kind of very black mark. Now, it shouldn't be a black mark on science, of course, but I think it has made people very wary about what comes out of claims about scientific advances. So that's one thing. I think on the other hand, Sid Mukherjee wrote an interesting piece in the New York Times. It was really a reflection of of an earlier comment or set of comments by Steve Shapen at Harvard where advances in understanding and screening for cancer of many varying kinds, the possibilities have expanded enormously in the last 20 years. And one of the things that worries Shapen and Mukherjee also is that we now have the tools to look at your genes, to look at, at many aspects of your blood, of your body, and say, well, you could likely be a candidate for such and such cancer in 10 years. And the worry then is that we all become cancer patients because eventually most bodies do succumb to one form of cancer or another. And I think the article picked up on some of the worries that are out there, which is kind of that the details of personalized medicine have made it such that, A, it's very, very, very expensive to do all the personalized medicine for everybody. And the also maybe we should just recognize that look, we are mortal beings. We all are eventually going to die and some of us are going to get cancer that's quite treatable. But let's not go overboard. Let's not, you know, become obsessed with every tiny aspect of our health. So I think that's another kind of current that is out and about, right?
0: Yeah. Well there are a couple of interesting points to pick up on. The first one is this idea of us being these very precarious beings, yeah, that we're constantly battling uh, microbes and and we're living in this incredibly adversarial world where things are trying to kill us and we're going to succumb to this, and we're going to succumb to that, yeah and I think that's a natural psychological corollary, if you will, or consequence of the times that we've been living in. I certainly find myself veering towards what would i think in healthier times be considered almost paranoid behavior in terms of avoiding people in a particular way or yeah. you know washing your hands to <laughs> to a particular extent yeah. or 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 this sort of thing so there's a fine line there and i think that's that's natural that as people especially people who are not experts are constantly bombarded with concerning Data and alarmist figures and talk about health. There is this paradigm of of war of a battle that's constantly being raged. Yeah. And uh, Lewis Thomas, uh, in, in a in an essay that I was reading the other day, pointing out the fact that most humans, most of the time, are remarkably robust and remarkably yeah. healthy. Yeah. And then there's the fact that most microbes that are out there in the world, and there are of course billions and billions and billions of these things, are not only not particularly dangerous to us, but in many ways, actually advantageous and live in a symbiotic relationship with us. And that's a whole different way of looking at things. And it's understandable, given what's been going on, that people tend to look at it in a much more adversarial, aggressive way that we're, you know, we have to protect ourselves at all costs, because if you turn the corner, we might just fall apart and fall to pieces. And I think this is extended beyond the pandemic, but has been triggered by an oversensitivity caused by the pandemic.
1: I think that is true, that the pandemic has put many of us into a frame where we lose track of the fact that we are pretty robust, we are pretty resilient, and that some of us will die. Well, actually, eventually all of us will die. Indeed. And maybe we just need to be a little bit more relaxed about some of these features of our biological selves. But it's hard because, on the one hand, the agencies responsible for putting out advice about how to conduct ourselves in the pandemic kind of have to stress the darkest side. Absolutely. And on the other hand, there are people who are very anti government who like to stress the, oh, it's all just, it's like a getting a cold. And many of us, of course, feel that somewhere in between is where good sense and wisdom lies. I have seen many people panic very needlessly. I mean, there's a way to go about things that is sensible, you know, get your vaccines, get a booster, wear a mask when you're amongst uh, in, in crowds and in the supermarket and so forth. But you don't need to panic.
0: Yeah, that you you don't. But it is, of course, as you pointed out, It's very difficult to draw that line and get the right degree of perspective when you're in the middle of a crisis on all sides, be it a government health agency, be it a doctor, be it it an individual. And the other thing that you pointed out when you mentioned uh, the opioid crisis of the Sacklers and so forth, it's of course very difficult for people who are outside of the entire scientific process. And by the entire scientific process, I mean not only the scientists, but the agencies, the government agencies. The, the various different authorities and bodies and so forth, it's very difficult to parse these things. And so there is a tendency to say, well, if there has been some impropriety, and of course there has been in many instances, sure. or if there has been lack of sufficient regulation or lack of sufficient oversight, or perhaps a bad decision that was made following improper advice mm-hmm. in the best of all possible faith, but it's hard to always know what to do when you're in a crisis, It's difficult for somebody who doesn't have that background not to have this amalgamated sense that, you know, well, all these guys are to blame, all these science guys are to blame, all the system is to blame. And there's a real difficulty on many ways of people who don't have a scientific background, or even for that matter, some people who do, to understand and appreciate some of these salient differences. So one difference that I wanted to get into, because I know you've written about this, Your experiences with BRAIN, this clever acronym of Brain Research Through Advanced Innovative uh, Neurotechnologies, that you could talk a little bit about how, in your experience in neuroscience, it's important to make sure and not only balance applied research, but also basic research. Because a lot of people are concerned that the the vaccine technologies, which are wonderful applied research and have proven remarkably effective beyond, I think, almost everyone's wildest dreams in terms of speed and efficacy and so forth. Mm -hmm. That's one side of the coin, but it's not the only side of the coin. And in the long term, it may not even be the most important side of the coin.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that tremendous efficacy of the vaccines and the speed with which they were developed has suggested to many people that, hey, you know, for disorders of the nervous system, we should be able to do that. I mean, why don't we understand Parkinson's and stop it? Why don't we understand the various forms of dementia and do something about it? I mean, Parkinson's is a good example in a way of something that is incredibly frustrating because you may have an individual who has done all the right things in terms of health all their lives, and yet at a fairly young age, say 55, symptoms of Parkinson's begin to appear. Now. There are many, many disorders of the nervous system, and I've only mentioned two, but there are others like Lou Gehrig's disease, like multiple sclerosis, and then, of course, there are all of the disorders that we think of as psychiatric, but I mean, they're basically in the same category. And for none, do we have a real understanding of what's going on? And for none, do we have anything like an adequate treatment? I mean, the drugs that are used to treat schizophrenia are the drugs that were developed 50 years ago. And it's not that people haven't tried to get better drugs. It's that we really do not understand the nature of the disease. And whatever the nature of it is, we know this much, that there is a complicated relationship between the genes that you have and the development of the brain as a result of the genes that you have, and then the eventual emergence of certain psychiatric patterns. And until we get to the bottom of that, we're not going to find a real treatment or a real cause. So what does getting to the bottom of it involve? Well, to answer that, you kind of have to think about, well, what are the tools that we use to study brains anyway? And the first point is we do have to use animal models, by which I mean we have to do experiments on things like mice and fruit flies and rats and so forth, because we can't do the kinds of experiments that involve cutting the brain of humans. Now, one of the tools that we've long used to study how the brain works anyway is the microelectrode. So you put in an electrode close to a cell, or if you're lucky, maybe even inside a cell, and you watch its activity. So you may expose the animal to a stimulus, you watch the activity of the neuron, and you begin to get a sense of what the brain does. Well, sort of. I mean, if you've got 800 million neurons and 10 to the 14 uh, synapses, Recording from one neuron at a time is like wandering around the world, looking at things through a straw. That's Terry Sanofsky's analogy, and, and it's quite right. You're going to miss the interconnectedness of how things work in the world. And what we miss looking at one neuron at a time is the interconnectedness of neurons in the brain. So, what the brain initiative allowed was for the development of techniques to study circuits of the brain. And that means uh, activating or recording from hundreds, thousands, in fact, a million neurons at a time. And that really has transformed the nature of neuroscience. Does it mean that we now know what Parkinson's disease is and how to cure it? No. No. But at least it is a basic approach to what is going on in the brain, and then that if anything will work to help us get there to understand Parkinson's, basic research will. So in neuroscience, I think it's absolutely critical to keep on funding basic research, even when it looks funny. I mean, one of the tools that came out of trying to find better ways to record from neurons came out of the study of bacteria who have certain kinds of receptors in their membranes that when the receptors are activated, they emit light. Well, isn't that just dandy? I mean, that's fun for somebody to work on. And you think, well, what good is that? Well, it turns out you can harness that to record from many, many neurons at a time in a mammalian brain not in a bacterial brain because bacteria don't have brains so what often can seem as inconsequential or somebody just you know following their intuitions because they're kind of a weird geek can turn out to be super super important it's very easy for the the general public to lose sight of that and so i think it is terribly important for us who are in science to kind of make these stories available
0: absolutely and you've touched on a few points that i think i'd like to highlight a little bit the first is this notion of the the goal of basic research insofar as looking for fundamental principles yeah so it's very easy to get distracted when you're working on a specific project how does this particular drug work? Is it effective? How does this particular, even this particular mechanism work? In which cases is it effective? You try it on N cases. You have an experiment about isolating this particular group of neurons or this particular issue in in, in neuroscience or in biology. You're looking at the responses to this particular antibody or what have you. But it's very, very important for the future development of any field it's completely field independent to try to get a sense of the the foundational principles. Because if you are able to increase your understanding in a profound way, then that has implications and applications across an enormous domain. So to take your example of networks, if you're looking at this concept of a network, and say, well, we're not looking from an individual neuron perspective anymore, or at least we're not emphasizing that or we're not focusing on that. What we're doing is we're focusing on groups and what we mean by a network is such and such and so-and-so. And and of course, that's a matter of debate and depends on the circumstances. But if you change your framework so that you're looking at things, fundamental constituents that are acting in a particular way and their fundamental constituents are different or differently defined or looked at from a different view, that's going to lead to a a vastly different way of approaching the entire subject. And that in turn might lead to real revolutions in our understanding. So that will only occur through a higher level reflective, matched obviously with experiment and empirical inquiry, notion of basic research. So that's one aspect I think of, of, of basic research as I hear you talk. And another aspect, which I think often is misunderstood by many people is just curiosity-driven inquiry, Yeah, this idea that you don't think to yourself, I'm going to do this because it's going to solve this particular problem or because it's going to do X or Y. You just think, huh, look at that. I don't understand this weird phenomenon. I'm going to try to get a deeper understanding of that. Mm -hmm. And that is something that historically leads to all sorts of revolutionary changes in our understanding and arguably is necessary. And this, I think, is something I I want to turn to the idea of public misconceptions of science in a a moment and what might be able to be done to ameliorate that. I was going to invoke a famous quote by Einstein, but the problem when you invoke a famous quote by Einstein is if you do some research, you find there's actually no evidence that Einstein said this. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) Einstein is attributed from saying, you know, just about everything. It's worse than Yogi Berra, quite frankly, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway and say that Einstein was alleged to have said, if we knew what we were doing, we wouldn't call it research. So again, <laughs> yeah. it's not clear that Einstein actually said that, but the sentiment is very much bang on. It's, it's arguably Einsteinian in its, uh, in its penetration. So that's really important to appreciate. And I think that very basic point that anyone can appreciate, but often isn't conveyed to them is essential, is an essential part of the scientific process. This notion of, I mean, sometimes I hear people talk about curiosity-driven research. And I think to myself, that's one of those expressions like evidence-based research that always drives me crazy <laughs> because I think, well, is there no curiosity-driven research? Is there research that has nothing to do with curiosity? Just like, is there, is there research or conclusions that have nothing to do with evidence? I mean, yeah. everything should really be curiosity-driven to some extent. Yeah. And I think not only has that historically been proven to be hugely effective in terms of development of all sorts of wondrous solutions that help us all in many different ways, but it's also part of who we are as a species. It's part of, the, the, of the, one of the great things that makes us human is to wonder and to inquire and to try to figure things out. And that should be celebrated. And I would argue, I'm going to pause, uh, you'll be relieved to know to give you an opportunity to say something, but I would argue that that is very, very rarely emphasized sufficiently in terms of education, both formal education in the scientific curriculum and general education in terms of communication with the, with the public, about what science is really all about. Science is really all about indulging one's curiosity and just trying to figure out what the heck is going on. I like that. I'm
1: very uh, moved by the idea that much of our lives involves curiosity and just trying to find find things out and try to understand something. And in the broadest sense, it's science. But sometimes when we pursue our hunches or we let our curiosity loose, it may not necessarily have to do with anything that traditionally is called science at all. Absolutely, It might just be fiddling around with something to see if you can make it work better and or if you can understand why it does what it does. And so some people watch birds intensely and some people watch bugs intensely and they may never write a report or whatever. But, you know, I think the curiosity aspect of human nature is, is sometimes undervalued but you can put it in a perspective that involves mammals and birds generally. My dog is very curious about all kinds of things. Things, of course, that are of interest to her. <laughs> but every time there's a new thing or a new person that comes into the house, she wants to sniff it all over, maybe turn it over, maybe check it all out, and Animals are intensely curious, even, even cows, you might think, well, you know, they just stand around and eat grass, but they are curious. And it's probably a really fundamental feature of what it is to be a mammal or a bird or perhaps even a, a vertebrate of any kind, because exploration helps us understand where we are and what's going on and that helps us predict the future and that helps us survive and that helps our babies survive and pass on our genes. And so my guess is that in the evolution of nervous systems, being an exploratory individual is highly rewarding, mostly. And it does redound to the stamina and the strength and and the survivability of of organisms. And also, I mean, if I may go back to dogs, they are very, very curious about things. But they also kind of know when "Mm, maybe this shouldn't be followed. Not quite right now. They sense if there's danger involved, uh, if a smell You know, if it's of a coyote, they'll go after it. But if it's a wolf, maybe they'll just back off for a little bit and watch and see. We're all like that. But it is true, of course, that in the case of humans, because we can act in a cooperative fashion, because we can also build over generations on the knowledge of the past to incorporate new discoveries of the present we do have this absolutely extraordinary organization that we call the development of science. And the fact that we understand quite a lot about electricity, both in the case of the sparks that you might see, or in the case of lightning, but also in the case of our biological natures. I mean, there was a huge fight, of course, in the, in the history of science between Galvani who felt that there had to be electrical properties in the organism's muscles. Otherwise, when he touched the frog's leg with a wire, why did it contract? Especially because the frog was dead. There has to be a reason. Yeah. And Volta, his Italian compatriot, said, no, 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 no. The, the electricity is only outside. There can't be electricity in the body itself. And, of course, he turned out to be wrong. And it's a nice story because it's also a story with politics. And it turned out that Galvani was on the wrong side of prevailing politics and died a miserable death in prison, whereas Volta was on the right side of politics and uh, got a huge estate in Italy and died very happily. But he was wrong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so that, that brings me to uh, the conflation of uh political thinking and scientific thinking which I'd like to get to but before I do let me pick up on some of the comments you made about curiosity because something that has always struck me and I've been involved as you know in uh, in a previous life as a director of an institute in various outreach activities and coordinating and developing outreach activities and talking to the public about science and many people certainly not all people but the vast majority of people when they had the image of science, I think they're, they're tainted, as it were, with two false beliefs. One is this idea that what science is, is this collection of facts. Yeah, yeah. They think back to their high school days, yeah. and there's always this answer at the back of the book, and they got seven out of 10 or six out of 10 <laughs> because they, didn't, they knew six of the answers, but they didn't know four of the answers. And there is this sense which is emphasized over and over and over again, of this is what you have to know, and this is how you pass the tests, and that's kind of what science is. Yeah. So you, you know this amount or you know that amount. The idea that science is really a constant quest into the unknown mm-hmm. and a constant attempt at trying to grapple with things that we don't understand is not sufficiently conveyed to sufficient numbers of people. Yeah. And so their are preconceptions of what science is is often this idea of recitation of facts, which is, which of course there are established ideas and established. We're not all starting from zero when we begin, but at, at the same time, that's not what makes a good scientist, and it's not a fundamental aspect of the scientific condition and the scientific mindset. So that's that's the first, I think, misunderstanding and misconception. The second is that this sometimes you hear this, and often you'll hear it from scientists themselves. This idea that somehow science represents this different way of thinking, right? Ah, you, know, right. You, you hear rational, unbiased inquiry and the scientific method as, you know, we, the scientific guys, we do things rationally and everybody else is just some irrational lunatic somewhere out there. That's the, the they don't say that of course, but the implication is that, that scientists somehow think differently. And that also I, I find is, well, frankly, I, I think it's wrong and it's intimidating to people. Yeah because they can't identify with it. They think, oh, well, you know, I'm an accountant or, or, or I'm, a, I'm a lawyer or, or whatever. And so I'm not a scientist. So these guys are somehow magically doing something different. And they're not. They're using rational, deductive and inductive, to some extent, processes to be able to figure out what's going on. They have some ideas. They try to amass evidence to support their particular views. Yeah. There is a sense, I think, where most people in the real world live in a somewhat fuzzy area. So they say, wow, there are no absolute right answers.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: But science doesn't actually work that way either. Yeah, yeah. You're building evidence, you're moving forwards. So I think there's a lot of overlap that you can have in terms of basic problem-solving skills in something like physics, for example, that can be applied, or biology or what have you, Mm -hmm. it can be applied to a whole host of other domains if you want to apply it to a historical domain, or you want to apply it to to uh, to understanding political systems, or what have you, and vice versa. If you if you're a rational thinker who's actually proceeding along rigorous grounds and trying to understand what is going on, and you're not just being impulsive and you're not just being wildly speculative, then that's the sort of thought process that that is really important. Science has been leading the way in that, and that to me is one of the things that. Really should be conveyed to people, certainly ever since, I was going to say ever since Galileo, but the problem is every, every time you say ever since, then you, you, you realize, <laughs> oh, there's Bacon, and then there's, you know, and so you can, yeah, yeah, you can yeah. keep going back to Aristotle and, and all the rest of that. But people of that persuasion, that's something that science has really, I think, taught us and is one of the main legacies, not so much the specific facts, not even so much the general facts, not even so much the general principles, but the methodology, the process, the way in which evidence is assessed, the way in which conclusions are reached. This is something which is really key and sadly, for the most part, is not, in my experience anyway, passed down. This is not the thing which is inculcated the most in in students who study science in high school or what have you.
1: Yeah, well, I think that some students are very lucky when they learn their science. And I I was very lucky. And I mean, this was a country bumpkin school, but we had really good teachers. And In learning science, it wasn't really presented as a bunch of facts you have to know. It started with stories, and stories about what people didn't know and wondered about, and it mattered to find out, and how they figured things out. And I think that in many ways, the history of science, when it's done really well, and there are historians who are really good at this, will give you a feeling for the so-called scientific method through the stories and how the stories evolved over time. So I think if you're lucky, you'll get teachers who, who will do that for you or you will have movies that will portray that. I mean, it would be fun to have a movie about Galvani and Volta and the disagreement between them. And notice, by the way, it wasn't that the disagreement had no emotions involved. And it wasn't that they knew enough about electricity to be able to be decisive about whether biological entities were internally electrical or not. They had hunches, and they tried to test the hunches in various ways, but they couldn't actually resolve it. So it's not that science is devoid of emotion. It's really only that we say, well, you know, wishful thinking is going to do you in in the end no matter what you're talking about, whether it's cooking or science or politics or carpentry, if you just hope that the roof will stay on, you know, sorry, that's not going to be good enough when the high winds go. (laughs) And I think for me that, you know, I grew up in a farming community and my own parents, neither of them had more than a seventh grade education. They didn't have high school because there was no high school where they grew up. And certainly they didn't have college because, I mean, well, how would you get there? But both of them had, you know, a very kind of sensible way of going about things. My father read voraciously, and when he needed to figure out something about the farming problem of uh, some kind or other, he would talk to the neighbors and figure out what they knew. And if they didn't know anything, he'd try various other, other methods. And the farmers used to meet on a Sunday night and we'd have these big dinners. And then they'd all sit around and talk about farming or you know, the best way to, to deal with a sick calf or what have you. And we kids would sit around and listen. And so it was just part of the conversation. And it was part of the conversation that if somebody was engaging in wishful thinking, they're going to pay for it. Their calf was going to die or what have you. And I sometimes, I mean, I greatly value this very, very practical life that I had because I think it grounds you in a certain way. But I think there are other ways, you know, you don't have to be on a farm to get good grounding. I think there are other ways in which kids can have a real touch or connection to practical problem solving. And that it does provide a kind of grounding then for something much more arcane and puzzling in science in a more abstract way. And most of the people that I have been fortunate enough to know as Great scientist. So Francis Crick was one. He had a very practical background. He wasn't really a very good student in high school because he was always kind of poking around doing stuff. And when he and Jim Watson were working on what the, the structure of DNA could be, he's fond. he was always fond of pointing out, you know, that most people at the time thought that DNA had nothing to do with genes and conveying information from parents to child. Why, I asked? And he said, because it's an acid. It's just a simple acid. How could it do this complicated thing of being the repository of inheritability? And so so first of all, other people were looking at complicated proteins and so forth. Moreover, he was in Bragg's lab and he was supposed to be doing x-ray crystallography. And on the side, he and Jim were working on the structure of DNA. And of course, you know, it it had a glorious ending, this story. But the other thing that he was fond of pointing out late in his life is that at the time that they were working on the structure of DNA, they had not the slightest expectation, never really crossed their minds, that if they understood the nature of heritability, that this would have health implications. He said they couldn't begin to foresee what the implications of all that would turn out to be. And I think that's kind of a wonderful example. And and it's not that when he was in high school, he wasn't a super bright kid. He was very imaginative, always able to kind of envisage consequences and see paths in an argument or in an idea. And that, that was really monumentally uh, important. But he, too, was never given to wishful thinking. As he would often say, you know, it's very important to admit you were wrong. He said, do it once a day if you can. <laughs> Don't fall in love with your hypotheses, was, was the other thing he would say, is that too many people end up defending a hypothesis long past the time when it's obviously false. So whatever the scientific method is, I think we learn most about it by watching people who are solving problems successfully. I don't know. I I don't want to say rationally because I don't know what the hell rationality is. It's not like it's the opposite of emotion. Because if you have no emotions, you're likely not to be very rational either, whatever rational means. So we are going to understand more about what it is to be, so to speak, rational. I prefer the word sensible because I think it has this contact to the practical aspects of making something work.
0: Let me use operationally, I'm happy to use sensible, but that just replaces one word for another. Let me replace it with three words and (laughs) say what I mean by rational is not wishful thinking.
1: Yes. That is a huge, huge thing. I mean, when people say, "Well, I don't get need to get vaccinated because I'm a healthy person," that's wishful thinking.
0: This brings me to something that you alluded to before uh, when you when you mentioned the political. And before I get there, I want to say that when when you when you suggested mm-hmm. that uh, that there be a movie made of the story of Galvani and Volta, I suggest that you should direct such a film because technology exists nowadays, Pat. That you can actually be a filmmaker pretty easily. So, should you wish to direct a film like this, I'd be would be supporting you. Let's with, do whatever it. The expression is, 110%. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're in Europe, and we would want to do lots of filming in Italy. And so, hey,
0: absolutely, absolutely, I'm I'm all for that. So let's. Okay. Uh, let, let, so I'm I'm glad that that's another very happy consequence and an unforeseen consequence. Once again, talking about the power of creativity, and that you never know. When I started this conversation, I didn't know I was signing up to do a film with you, but you see, that's, that's one <laughs> of the consequences. But I, I want to get to this, this idea of the comparison, if you will, between the political world, or at least the contemporary political world, and the scientific world. And I think this is of particular importance today. We're seeing the repercussions of the clash of these worlds
1: yeah.
0: all over the world right now in terms of Looking at a scientific biological issue from a political perspective. Of course, there are natural overlaps because when you're in the middle of a pandemic, you have to do something. And when you do something, it means that government has to act in some particular way. So there are obvious overlaps there. But in particular, what I'm referring to is the confusion that I think some people have in terms of how scientific oriented developments happen because they're used to a particular prism that is framed for them day in, day out by the media. So let me try to tell you a little bit about uh, what I mean by that, and then you can give me a sense of whether you think that that's right or you think that that's wrong. So one hears all the time in the media this expression, there are two sides to every story.
1: Yes, yes, yes.
0: No matter what event happens, Mm -hmm. uh, you have to be sufficiently skeptical so that you have person A who claims one thing, and then you have to find person B who claims the other. And what I would submit is that that uh, framework, that overall approach is very justified within a particular context, namely the political context, because Mm -hmm. we all know that if you follow politics, no matter what somebody who stands up and gives a speech about what he's going to do or to what extent he was successful in doing it, or what his policies are, or what his brilliant idea is, that has a political context to it. And then you're going to get somebody who stands up from the other party, who's going to say, that's all nonsense, or that's not well-founded, and, and so forth and so on. And maybe we've taken that to an extreme, but it's a it's a framework, it's a paradigm that everybody is familiar with. Yeah. So we're not expecting when the leader of party A stands up and says, I think we should do that, that the leader of party B will stand up and say, he's absolutely right. We should do everything that he says. There's naturally going to be a difference in perspective, or perhaps more significantly, when the leader of party A stands up and says, we're in wonderful shape because of all these policies that we have invoked, you would expect the leader of party B to stand up and say something rather critical. And so there is that political paradigm that happens everywhere. And people expect that, and and in fact, that is considered to be, uh, to some extent, the hallmark of a society which is imbued with free speech, that people will necessarily take different positions, and so forth. So if you're a journalist and you have that view, it's reasonable and understandable within a political context if that's your domain of interest, and that is the domain of interest by and large of most people of a journalistic persuasion. The problem is they apply that domain. To the scientific realm. Yeah, yeah. So what they, yeah. what they do is somebody, some scientist stands up and says A, and the assumption is the reason why that person is saying that is because of some political agenda or because yeah. of their friends or because of their team or because of the money that they're going to make or because of all these other things. And so it's our job to find somebody who says the exact opposite from what, what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's very deleterious to understand exactly what's going on. It's just a, it's a very very different framework. That's not of course to say that there aren't disputes and there aren't controversies right. and there aren't strong differences of opinion yeah. within science. There are, of course. But it also precludes by definition the idea that those are often at a very different scale. For example, it's very very hard, I would say nigh on impossible to find a geneticist these days who doesn't believe in basic ideas of DNA, basic ideas of genes, basic idea of how genes code, basic ideas, certainly basic ideas of evolution. So there is a a wide body of established knowledge that exists throughout all of science. And science is all about converging that. And at the edges, you find all sorts of different controversies and, and differences of opinions and so forth. But it is the wrong paradigm to be bringing to the situation. And people, I think, misunderstand that. So very, very concretely, when it comes to something like this is a vaccine and it works in this particular way, And these are the principles upon which it operates, and here are the risks that we think are associated with that. There is a wide body of scientific consensus, a very, very wide body, a disproportionately wide body of scientific consensus of people coming from all different directions Mm -hmm. that subscribe to those basic views. And it is not appropriate to put that in. Well, you know, we have one scientist who thinks it's fine, and then we've we've hunted all over planet Earth to find some guy under a rock somewhere in Australia who thinks the exact opposite, and we're going to bring him to our crossfire type of uh, debate. And that's just a blatant misrepresentation of reality. And I'm not sure whether that's because that's the only idiom they can imagine or because they're so used to that or because there are other factors involved that that encourage them to think that way. But it's very, very misleading because it applies what I would call a completely wrong framework, which is right in some instances, namely the political uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm instance the scientific instance where, where it just doesn't hold any water whatsoever. Yeah.
1: yeah, I agree, actually, that the sort of assumption that the truth is always in the middle is really misapplied in a scientific context. I mean, if you think about the dispute between those who thought that DNA carried the heritable information and those who thought that proteins did, it's not that the truth was somewhere in the middle. We know that it's DNA. So the truth is often isn't in the middle. And and incidentally, I think in a judicial context, we tend to say that as well. That is, you know, either the guy is guilty of first degree murder, or he's not. Uh, I mean, if he was somewhere in some other country at the time of the murder, then he's not. So it works also. Uh, I, I mean, the truth is not in the middle in a judicial context. Although sometimes the evidence, one way or another, is so confusing or poorly represented or incomplete that we say we don't know. And of course, scientists are quite happy to say we don't know all the time. But in the current political situation, one of the things that I keep hearing from my non science friends is we really don't know anything about mRNA. And I say, no, actually, we know a lot. And can I tell you what we know? And they don't want to know. So that puzzles me. If we really don't know anything about mRNA, how is it that, you know, we can explain how this vaccine works? And there's wonderful... How is it that
0: we have a vaccine that works? Well, yes.
1: We have wonderful (laughs) infographics explaining that. And so there are... All kinds of funny things going on, I think, with regard to the, the reaction to science. I think there are also some individuals, and some of them are scientists, who talk about quantum mechanics in such a way that makes you think that it's all so ridiculous and mysterious and nuts that uh, anybody would ever come up with these sorts of claims and then say they're true. Uh, that who can believe what a scientist says anyway? And that is kind of regrettable. I mean, Feynman, to his credit, was so good at explaining in a simple way some aspect of basic physics. And we certainly need more of that. By the way, I think in a philosophical context, Many people are given to this idea, well, you know, so-and-so thinks this, and somebody else thinks the opposite. You know, Pat Turchlin thinks that the brain generates consciousness, and David Chalmers thinks that it can't possibly, that everything is conscious, including cow pies. Uh, The truth is somewhere in between. And that's because in in the case of philosophers, often there is no way of settling the matter. Even though the probabilities and the weight of evidence, I think, are clearly on the side of of those of us who say the brain generates consciousness. David Chalmers, you know, he's, well, yeah. Anyhow, you know know the story. So I think philosophers can do better as well. And, you know, most recently, Chalmers has had an interview in the magazine section of the New York Times. And let me just back up for a moment. I'm sure that when you were a kid, you did this. My friends and I did this. One afternoon, we were talking about our dreams. And, you know, you dream this and you dream that. And then somebody says, hey, wait, what if it's all a dream? And then you think, oh, yeah, well, oh, my God, it's that time. I've got to go home and milk the cow. Now, basically, David Chalmers is saying, well, we could all be a simulation. And I read this and I thought, oh, God. You know, we on the farm had to grow up. We didn't have a choice because the practical realities made us grow up. And here's Chalmers in the New York Times. Wait, what on earth are people going to think when they read this nutty article? I mean, I think it's great that it can be published. So go ahead and, and say maybe it's all a dream. But um,
0: uh. I can understand your frustration. So I'm not a professional philosopher but i think there is a tendency in the popular consciousness to trivialize philosophy as this notion of well they're just a whole bunch of people trying to put you know an infinite amount of angels on an infinite number of, yeah, of heads yeah. of pins and what you mean by philosophy is something which is necessarily detached from reality when they yeah. use the word philosophy or philosophical or, or they they say well that's just a philosophical comment yeah, or just do. a philosophical they do. argument yeah and the meaning behind that is, well, we don't have to take it seriously, yeah. or it's just too implausible, or, or so forth. Since you brought this up, I wasn't going to. But uh, <laughs> and, and then you really, you really pushed my buttons by talking about people who talk nonsense about quantum theory. Oh, oh, it drives me crazy. Which is certainly true, and heavily regrettable. And some of them are professional philosophers. Oh, way. yes. So we talked a little bit about this in the conversation that we had years ago. When I said to you, one of the things that is very frustrating for a, a theoretical physicist. When you ask the question, well, what is a, what is a philosopher of physics anyway? What, what does that individual do? Very often the response is something along the lines of the following. Well, you guys in physics, you come up with your theories and what I do as a philosopher of physics is I understand the theories. And this just drives a physicist completely crazy. Now they, they don't usually use exactly those words but that seems to be what the argument is distilled into, right? Yeah my job, what I add, my value add, is to give some sort of overall context and philosophical meaning and connection. And this is something which is bound to drive any theoretical physicist completely crazy. Of the course. idea that you could come up with a theory and consider a theory and develop a theory, somehow being oblivious to the overall yeah. meaning or semantic content or philosophical connection is just ludicrous. Yeah. So, my approach, when actually I was, uh, found myself, quite surprisingly, in an administrative capacity, was to say, let's forget about labels. Let's forget about where, where you hang your hat and, and whether you're in a philosophy department or a physics department or applied math department or, or, or pure math department or what have you. If you say that you are participating in this great venture to try to make sense of what's going on. And if you are recognized as such by your peers, by your intellectual contributions, by your papers and so forth, then you are included in what it is that we're doing. And we're not going to distinguish yeah. whether you're in the philosophy department or the physics department or, yeah. or what have you. I imagined if you could go back in time 80 years and you would walk up to Mr. Einstein or Mr. Schrodinger and you were to ask them, do you do philosophy or physics? They would say, yes, I do. Yes, philosophy they do. Or yeah. I, do, I do philosophy. I do physics. I do. To to them it's it's exactly the same thing. And so I didn't see any difference in content in the venture. I wanted to contrast this with biology, because in my experience as somebody who is not a biologist and has no biological training, but nonetheless has been reading quite a bit about biology, there are many instances for me where I think biology as a discipline is desperately in need of a more philosophical approach. I'm not sure exactly why, whether it's because biology is such an incredibly broad field, whether it's because there's an aspect of biology which is so overtly applied and empirical, mm. whether there's there's little development for all sorts of very understandable reasons in the notion of theoretical biology as opposed to theoretical physics. Yeah. But in my personal experience, there have been many instances where I thought, Gosh, if only there had been people who had a more philosophical, broader view of the situation, yeah. we could have made much more progress.
1: Yeah. You know, part of what is frustrating, I think, in neuroscience is that we still don't have the basic principles. We still don't really know how we see or how we move. And that's because neuroscience is a very young science of necessity, given the nature of the problem and, and the importance of developing tools and techniques for accessing
0: nervous systems.
1: And in the last 20 years, that's changed dramatically.
0: Yeah. Let me just conclude by thanking you very much. It's, it was a pleasure to talk to you as always. It's been a while since we've been in contact, so it's, a uh,
1: yeah, this has been really nice. You've uh, made me think about a lot of things actually.
0: I hope you enjoyed this Pandemic Perspectives podcast. Once again, our Pandemic Perspectives documentary, released in early March 2022, is available for rent or purchase through the Ideas Roadshow app. While the accompanying book, Pandemic Perspectives: A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, is available in print and ebook through all major book distributors and an audiobook on the Ideas Roadshow app. See ideasroadshow.com for more details.